Father, we thank you for the privilege of living in the days that we find ourselves. Father, wonderful days when we are seeing before our very eyes the things written in your word come to pass. Father, I just pray your Holy Spirit will remind us, Father, that Abraham would have longed to have seen these days. Moses would have longed to have lived in these days. But we have the privilege of actually seeing them. Father, we just remember the route from which we have come. We remember all of those wonderful believers who have lived in the past and who have laid down such a rich treasure of dedication to yourself for us to study and to see. And Father, I just pray that we should live lives that are upright and worthy of the name of Christian. Father, just forgive us, Lord, that so often in our lives the world does not see Jesus, but instead they see petulance or they see our own old sin nature coming through. Father, I want to pray in Jesus' name that even through the study tonight you will give us greater determination to serve you and to love you with all of our hearts. Father, we ask that you will direct this evening, that, Father, you will give us clarity of thought and of vision so that we might know the way ahead. And I want to pray specifically now for all those people listening to these tapes as they're sent out. We ask your anointing upon them as they gather around the Word of God tonight. Father, we thank you all around the world these studies are being heard. We ask you wherever they are that you will bless them, their houses, their families, their communities and their countries in the name of Jesus. Father, we recognize the importance of the word of truth and we pray we should be diligent until that word of truth gets out as a light unto the Gentiles, Father, so that the world might see that Jesus is coming and coming soon in Jesus' name. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Amen. Tonight I want to deal with a passage which is uh, actually uh, a passage which contains a lot of symbolism in the book of Revelation. And I want to deal with what we call the woman clothed with the sun. Now you remember, I hope, from the study we had on seals and trumpets and vials, that not all passages in Revelation are chronological in order. Not all of them deal with events one after the other. But in fact, you've got a lot of passages in Revelation that give us vital information to understand the period as a whole. And the chapter I want to go to tonight is one of those chapters that gives us invaluable, infill material. All right, Things that actually help us to understand the period of the tribulation as a whole. So let's turn immediately, please, tonight to Revelation and chapter 12, where we see John still absolutely enraptured with what is unfolding before his eyes. And here God is going to show him something dramatic and something very wonderful and something that actually explains the whole course of human history. We'll begin with verse 1. And I'll read verse 1 and verse 2 through. This is Revelation chapter 12, verse 1 and verse 2. And there appeared a great wonder in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and upon her head a crown of twelve stars. And she, being with child, cried, travailing in birth and pained to be delivered. And we see here an amazing picture, a woman beautifully and wonderfully dressed with certain signs around her, which are actually signs that enable us to understand who she is. And this woman is a woman who is long overdue in pregnancy. That's how it seems. She is heavy with child, as the Bible would say, and she is just crying out to be delivered of this burden that she has within her. And uh, so, so awful is this pain that she is calling for the day of her release. That's it. Saying, Lord, may I be the one to deliver this child and soon. That is the message that this woman is giving out. Now, we have the job immediately of identifying who this woman is. If you can't identify this woman, then you can't understand the passage that we're dealing with. And fortunately, when you come to passages like this, which have a lot of picture language, you'll always find they have things that show you the meaning of the particular passage. And of course, uh, here we have the sun, 
we have the moon mentioned and we have 12 stars mentioned as being associated with this woman. And the Bible, of course, as usual, is its own best commentary. And so all we have to do is find in the Bible a place where we see the sun and the moon and 12 stars mentioned, and that will give us the clue that we need as to who this person is. And when you start going through the Bible, it's not long, if you start in Genesis, before you hit the passage that concerns us. And if you keep your finger in the place then, let's turn to the passage that mentions the sun, the moon, and 12 stars, and you'll find it in Genesis and chapter 37. Genesis 37, where we have a chapter dealing with this young man, the dreamer, Joseph. Joseph, you remember, was one of the 12 sons of Jacob. He was actually the 11th son in order of age. And he had been given the position of authority by his father. And it was a position which, of course, his other brothers, especially his elder brothers, resented very much. And here, he's given visions from God. Now, let's see the two visions, but it's actually the second one that uh, concerns us. Verse 6 of Genesis 37. And Joseph said unto them, Here, I pray you, this dream which I have dreamed. For behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and lo, my sheaf arose. All the sheaves lying about in the field, and one sheaf, which happens to be Joseph's sheaf, stood upright. And also stood upright, and behold, your sheaves stood around about, and made obeisance to my sheaf. And his brethren said to him, Shalt thou indeed reign over us, or shalt thou indeed have dominion over us? And they hated him yet the more for his dreams and for his words. For they understood the symbolism of this. This meant that one day Joseph would be in a position where his brothers had to bow the knee to him and actually, actually had to be under his authority. And as if that isn't bad enough, he then goes on to dream yet another dream. These really given by God. Verse 9. And he dreamed yet another dream and told it his brethren and said, Behold, <clears throat> I have dreamed a dream more. And behold, the sun and the moon and the eleven stars, there they've got it, with Joseph, of course, as the twelfth star there, the sun and the moon and the eleven stars made obeisance to me. And he told it to his father and to his brethren. And his father, who understood the symbolism instantly, of course, rebuked him and said unto him, What is this dream that thou hast dreamed? Shall I, he says, the sun, and thy mother, the moon, and thy brethren, your eleven brethren, indeed come to bow ourselves down to thee, to the earth? He says, oh no, definitely not. But you see, what we need from that is to see what he's referring to. The sun, the moon, the twelve stars here refer, of course, to Jacob and to his family. And immediately we can say that the picture of the woman in Revelation 12 refers to the Jewish nation as a whole. Now remember this, the Jewish nation began when Abraham was called out of his homeland. And you remember, I hope, that the word Hebrew means one who crosses the river. And Abraham was called out of his homeland and he crossed not just one river, many rivers actually, to go into a land which was not his, uh, by birth, and he went through eventually into the land of Canaan. Abraham was the one that God said he would use to establish his people. Abraham then, of course, had a son whose name was Isaac. Isaac had a son whose name was Jacob, and here is Jacob with his 12 sons. And actually, through the 12 sons, the whole of the tribe of Israel is established. And from that time on, of course, every person in the land of Israel, who is a Jew, belongs to one of the tribes directly related to Jacob and his sons. You see? So the woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, with the twelve stars around her, is a reference to the Jewish nation, and immediately it tells us that Revelation 12 is a passage which is going to deal with the history of the Jewish nation. Something to do with God's people, the Jews. All right, let's go back to Revelation chapter 12. <laughs> Revelation 12, and here in verse 1, therefore, we have the Jewish nation, and look at this, verse 2, the Jewish nation which 
is pregnant, which is about to bring forth something or other. Go on to verse 5 and you'll see what the Jewish nation was going to bring forth. Verse 5, And she brought forth a man-child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up unto God and to his throne. And here you are told specifically who the person is that the Jewish nation had come to bring forth. Who is this man-child who is going to rule the nations with a rod of iron? Well, from Psalm 2.9, from, of course, uh, Isaiah 9.6, we know full well that this is a reference to Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And here's the most amazing thing. The whole history of the Jews finds its culmination in Jesus Christ. And we learn something important from this whole principle. Do you know, the Jews are the ones that we have to say brought forth Christianity. And I think, you know, it's a very good thing sometimes for the branches to remember the root from which we have come. Sometimes the church gets so blasé about this, they think they're absolutely the last word, you know, and they forget the Jewish nation from which really they and their faith came. And uh, Romans 11 warns us, it says, now look, you Gentiles, look, you Christians, he says, don't you get proud and high-minded. Remember from whence you have come. Remember the Jewish background. Salvation, as Jesus says, is of the Jews. The one who is our Savior and Lord and Master was a Jew born to a Jewish mother. We've got to remember it. We've also got to remember that this book that we study the Holy Bible, as we, we call it, the Bible, which is in our hands, this is mainly Jewish writings. You know, this is Jewish literature. Very, I mean, it's an oversimplification. Actually, do you know, every writer of the Bible was Jewish except for one, and that was Luke, except for Luke. All the others are Jewish. Do you see, we owe all our heritage to the Jews. And you remember when we dealt with the prophecy of Noah, we saw this principle that we shall dwell in the tents of Shem. We will dwell in the blessing on the Semitic nations and specifically the Jewish nation. And the picture here of the woman bringing forth is a picture of the, the motherhood, as it were, of the Jewish nation. Now, specifically, who did she bring forth? It was Jesus himself. This man who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. And when we come on to the millennium, we'll be seeing Jesus ruling the nations with a rod of iron. All right? We'll actually be looking and, uh, and seeing all of his rulership and how the rulership affects the earth. Now, this tells us something. This shows that when Jesus Christ came, really the Jewish purpose had come to its fruition. When Mary gave birth to that child, at last, the Jewish nation could sigh a sigh of relief. And all Jewish, nation, uh, all Jewish women, right down through Jewish history, they all longed, you know, to be the mother of the Messiah. They all wanted to be the one who would bring the Messiah into the world. And Mary, who was a handmaid of the Lord, was actually chosen. This woman, however, does not refer to Mary. This refers to the Jewish nation as a whole. Because, you see, from the time that it was revealed to Eve that she would bring forth the one who would crush the head of the devil, right the way through the Old Testament, it's gradually revealed that Messiah is coming uh, from the Jews. This is the whole Jewish nation. And it tells us something else, by the way, but something that we'll see in just a moment. It shows us why there was anti-Semitism in the Old Testament. All right, go now to verse 3 and 4, and let's see two verses that we saw last time. Verse 3, this is just, actually, I think I'll read from verse 1 again so that we, we get the details. And there appeared a great wonder in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and upon her head a crown of twelve stars, the Jewish nation. And she, being with child, cried, travailing in birth, and pained to be delivered. And verse 3 and 4 we saw last time, and there appeared another wonder in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon, having seven heads 
and ten horns and seven crowns upon his head, and his tail drew the third part of the stars of heaven and did cast them to the earth. And you remember last time we saw that this was the first person in the satanic trinity. This is the devil himself, in control of one-third of the angels that we now call demons. And notice what happens at the end of verse 4. And the dragon stood before the woman which was ready to be delivered for to devour her child as soon as it was born. We have this pregnant Jewish nation and we have the devil waiting to devour her child who was going to be the Messiah. And we have here in a beautiful picture a, a picture of anti-Semitism. Do you know, it's an amazing thing about the Jews. They've always been disliked from the time that Abraham was given the promise. Every single generation has seen the Jews being persecuted somewhere on the earth. Why? I'll tell you why. Because always that Jewish nation has been like a pregnant woman before Satan, ready to bring forth the Messiah, the one who would defeat him and the one who would crush his head. And Satan tried and tried and tried desperately to destroy the Messiah. That was his purpose. I would say this, from Abraham right through to the time that Jesus died on the cross, anti-Semitism was entirely related to the destruction of the Messiah. You can trace it through the Old Testament. I think I've done it once many years ago. You can trace the line of Jesus through the Old Testament and see how Satan came sometimes very close to destroying the line through which Jesus would come. He didn't want the Messiah to come. He was determined that the Messiah wouldn't come. And anti-Semitism right up to the time of Jesus was marked by this desire of Satan to stop Jesus coming. He didn't mind how he did it, he'd exterminate the whole of the Jews if he could. But that man must not come. You'll notice, by the way, anti-Semitism has changed its form since Jesus has come. Now the Jews are still hated, but not to stop the Messiah. It's too late now, praise God. The Messiah has already come, but now, of course, Satan's attack on the Jews is so that he can destroy them as a people and as a nation. And if he can destroy the whole Jewish nation, then God can't fulfill his promises to them. And if God doesn't fulfill his promises to the Jews, what do we find? We find God a liar. And that is the push today behind all anti-Semitism. Wherever you see anti-Semitism, I want you to remember this picture of the dragon standing in front of the woman. The dragon is still in front of the woman and still trying to devour her, very definitely. You see? Up to the time of Jesus, he was intent upon destroying the child that was in her womb. If that meant destroying her, okay. If that meant just destroying the child, that was fine. I think it's a warning, and it's a warning to the nations of the earth today and to Britain. Do you know the whole history of anti-Semitism is rather like a graveyard? It really is. You see uh, a certain nation, and all of a sudden, for no reason at all, they become anti-Semitic. They don't last long from the time they become anti-Semitic. Assyria. Do you remember Assyria? Saved through the preaching of Jonah? Yes, a Jew. Saved, wonderfully saved, the whole nation. The result of their salvation was that they thrived. They became the strongest nation on the earth. And all of a sudden, they became anti-Semitic. After that, they had only another 100 or 200 years of history left. And that was the end of Assyria. Assyria rose and declined. And then they were followed by Babylon. Babylon, anti-Semitic. Result, lasted 60 years and declined. After them came Persia. And let me tell you something. Persia was very good to the Jews in the early days of its history. And so the result was Persia thrived. Absolutely thrived on every side. Everything it touched turned into gold. Wonderful. And then, about 200 years after the Persian Empire was established, they became anti-Semitic. They didn't last long after that. Then Alexander the Great rose, do you remember? And he loved the Jews. He thrived. But the ones who came after him were anti-Semitic. They soon declined. Rome went the same way. And so you can go right through history. You can see the Spanish Empire, for example, right thriving. Then all of a sudden, anti-Semitism breaks out. It's the end of the Spanish Empire. You know, it declined. While all the other empires were still on the way up. You can see Hitler's Third Reich, you know, declares war on the Jews. There's a time when the the dragon stood in front of the pregnant, or not pregnant anymore, but stood in front of the woman to devour her. 
and Hitler, the Third Reich, was going to last for a thousand years. It declined. And of course, we can wonder in Britain whether in fact the lack of support we gave to the Jews in 1930 and 1940 may in some way be responsible for the decline that we have seen in our own nation. I think we've got to really learn from the lessons of history. Do you know, this is beautiful. In one short verse here, or a number of short verses, uh, God has said all of that. You know, he said, the devil is against the Jews. All right, specifically though, against the man-child that she will bring forth. And do you remember, by the way, what happened the moment Jesus was born? The moment Jesus was born, the devil moved in and with a vengeance. The three wise men had come, do you remember, bearing gifts, gold, frankincense and myrrh. And Herod the Great, who of course wasn't interested at all in Jesus thriving, had said, um, oh, by the way, when you find him, could you please tell me who he is and where he is? Because I want to go and pay homage to him. And the wise men found Jesus, and they were warned, do you remember, in a dream. Go back a different way. Don't tell Herod the Great that you have found the one who is the king. Don't tell him. Go a different way. And at the same time, Joseph was told, Joseph, get out of the land, and quickly there are people about seeking to destroy this child. And Joseph, given a vision of Egypt, goes down into the land of Egypt, and using probably the gold that was given to him by one of the wise men. And down he goes into Egypt. Of course, it's a few months before Herod realizes that the wise men aren't coming back that way. And so he reckons it up and he says, well, he says, let me see, they saw the star when they were in their own land. They had to travel here. They saw me. They had to travel to Bethlehem in, in Judea where they were going. Then they've gone away and he works it out and he says, well, I reckon all of that may have taken at the most two years. And then he sends a decree out and he says, in that area, kill all the children under two years of age. And his soldiers marched into the, the area and they started slaughtering every child that they heard crying or that they saw being walked out in the streets or wherever they were. Just slaughtered them willy-nilly all over the place, you know. Actually, that was Satan. Satan in Herod the Great determined that the child would be devoured. There it is. All right, so that's verse 4. Here is the woman ready to be delivered for to devour her child as soon as it was brought forth. And then verse 5, and she brought forth a man-child who was to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up unto God and to his throne. And here Jesus is being referred to. And what happens to Jesus? At a point in his life, he is taken up to be in the heavenlies with his Father and to be seated at the right hand of God the Father. When did that occur? It was 40 days after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. On that day, Jesus, in front of all of the disciples standing there, was taken up in the clouds of glory, hallelujah, and today he is seated at the right hand of God the Father. Now that's the, all that is referred to here. This goes right back to the birth of the Lord Jesus and up to the time of his ascension. And then verse 6. Verse 6, And the woman, referring again to the Jews, fled into the wilderness. The word fled, of course, means she's running away and running away from someone who is after her life. The woman fled into the wilderness where she hath a place prepared of God that they should feed her there a thousand two hundred and threescore days. Now, the key to that verse is, of course, in the number. We have one thousand two hundred and sixty days. We've seen this figure before. 1260 days or 42 months or three and a half years. And as we saw when we were talking about the tribulation, we, the tribulation is a period of seven years which is divided into two halves of three and a half years each. And wherever we found either 1260 days or 42 months or three and a half years, it's usually referred to the second half of the tribulation here. Now this is an amazing thing. 
Here you have, in verse 6, the period of the tribulation, and specifically the latter half of the tribulation, and you see the Jewish nation running for its life. That's anti-Semitism in the tribulation. Right? This is anti-Semitism which breaks out halfway through the tribulation. Now do you see what happens between verse 5 and verse 6? In verse 5, you've got the ascension of Jesus Christ ten days before the day of Pentecost. In verse 6, and without any warning, you suddenly jump right the way through to the tribulation. Alright, let me draw it out. Here's the ascension. This is the day of Pentecost. Then you've got the church here. And here's the tribulation. Now, what have you got? You've got an event which occurs, in verse 5, you have an event which occurs before the church came. In verse 6, you've got an event which occurs after the church has gone. Does that surprise you? Well, it shouldn't do. Because, of course, most of you, I trust, were here when we dealt with the mystery of the church. Do you remember, in the Old Testament, this was what we saw all the time. We saw events that occurred before the church came put absolutely side by side with events that occurred after the church had gone. And you saw in the Old Testament sometimes a complete jump right over 2,000 years of history. Absolutely amazing. Here in Revelation 12, you have exactly the same thing. And so, the end of verse 5 deals with the ascension of Jesus Christ. Suddenly, forget the church, forget it completely. It's not mentioned in this passage. You jump straight over and you're right to the middle of the tribulation here, and what do you find? You find the Jewish nation running for its life. Now, I think we ought to really, at this point, look at the details of the Jewish nation running for its life. Unfortunately, the Bible tells us the details. Before we actually do that, let's just uh, draw it up on the board so that we know exactly what we are talking about. Here's the period of the tribulation, seven years. The rapture of the church, as we've seen, occurs before the period called the tribulation. The seven years then carries on and ends with the second advent of Jesus Christ. And the tribulation itself is divided into two halves, three and a half years each. All right, now let's see the details then of the Jewish woman running for her life. And to do that, let's turn back to the Old Testament, to Daniel and chapter 9. Daniel and chapter 9. And the last verse of chapter 9, verse 27. Daniel 9, 27. We've seen this verse before, so we only have to go through it quickly again. Verse 27 deals with the seven years of the tribulation. And the he referred to in verse 27 is the leader of the revived Roman Empire. Here's the dictator of the revived Roman Empire. And it says here, this is by way of repeat, actually, and I hope a reminder, and the dictator of the revived Roman Empire shall confirm a covenant or a treaty with the many, which we saw referred to the Jewish nation, for one week, that is, for seven years. At the very beginning of the tribulation here, the man who is now leader of the revived Roman Empire, he says to Israel, Oh Israel, he says, I want to make a little uh, agreement with you. And it's something like this. Israel, you supply me with uh, chemicals from the Dead Sea, and I will supply you with defense. In fact, Israel, from this time on, you won't have to spend any money on an army or any money on any armaments at all and we will look after your defense, we promise. If any person comes and attacks your land, we promise we will fight for you. And Israel in these days thinks, well, that sounds like a pretty good scheme. So they say, that's done. And they say, all right, we'll make it for a period of seven years, and then we'll renew it at the end of seven years. So that's absolutely marvelous. And for the first three and a half years, there is quite a lot of peace for the land of Israel. While this man... Uh, consolidates his control in the whole world. But look what happens. And in the midst of the week, that's halfway through, that's after three and a half years, he, which is, of course, again, the leader of the revived Roman Empire, this is Antichrist, 
he shall cause the sacrifice and oblation to cease. In the tribulation, the temple has been rebuilt in Jerusalem, and in that temple which has been rebuilt, they are offering again sacrifices as unto the Lord. You see? And Antichrist says, well, that's fine. You just carry on and have a good time. But do you remember, we also saw about the false prophet that in the first three and a half years, the false prophet builds up a religion surrounding the beast. And he gets all the nations to worship the beast. And by three and a half years into the tribulation, that religion is spreading like wildfire. And halfway through the tribulation, it's time that it spread to Israel. And so what happens is, the man arrives in Israel, and he says, oh, by the way, he says, um, you've got to worship the beast now. All right? And I've come with this statue, or with these statues, to uh, put them in your temple, and I want you all now to start worshipping the beast. And you remember, he puts one in the holy place, and he puts one on the pinnacle of the temple, so that everyone knows this is a temple now devoted not to the Lord God of Israel, but to the beast, specifically. And he goes on, in the midst of the week he shall cause the sacrifice and oblation to cease, and then this phrase, and for the overspreading of abominations, he shall make it desolate. And you remember in Daniel 70 weeks, we saw that that was a mistranslation, that actually it says, and on the wings, abominations that make maketh desolate. And it, the wings refers to the pinnacle of the temple. On the pinnacle of the temple, a statue which finally will produce desolation in the land of Israel. And halfway through, this agreement is completely shattered because the Jews all of a sudden say, we will not worship the beast. We refuse. We want our temple worship and we're going to worship the Lord God of Israel in our own temple. And do you know what happens? The beast says, oh, rebellion, eh? And he orders his troops into the land of Israel. In fact, the troops are ordered so rapidly that the Jews have only a little time to prepare themselves. Most of the Jews in the land, once they know that this is going to be forced upon them, they start digging uh, um, defences, you know, trenches in the streets and things like this. They start blocking the main roads, start blowing up bridges and things of that nature. And most people are determined that they're going to resist the challenge of Antichrist like mad. This is the beginning of the persecution of the Jews in the middle of the tribulation. But there's a group of Jews who do not do that. One group of Jews, and they happen to be true Jews, because they are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. And they have been studying their Bibles, and halfway through the tribulation, they've been reading the book of Matthew. And they don't have to be informed of what to do as soon as they see this, this statue set up in the temple. Perhaps you do have to be informed. I hope not, because I think we've dealt with this. But in case you do, turn to the book of Matthew and chapter 24. The book of Matthew, 24, and verse 15. This is the very passage of Scripture they will be reading. Hallelujah. And perhaps not too many years hence, either. We will not be around to see it. Hallelujah. Certainly not down here on this earth, although I hope we'll be getting a grandstand view up in heaven. I certainly will not be the Bible teacher up there. Verse 15. Verse 15. I hope I didn't hear a little voice from heaven saying, Oh no? <laughs> All right. Verse 15. When ye therefore shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel, a reference to the statue in the temple. When you see it, stand in the holy place, and then in brackets, whosoever readeth, let him understand. Then let them which be in Judea flee unto the mountains. And this is the woman rushing into the wilderness the woman who really is the Jewish believing remnant. As soon as she sees it, it says, now you just get out of town and quick, because the moment Israel rebels, there are going to be troops coming from Italy and from the eastern Mediterranean. They will pour into the land of Palestine to bring the Jews 
to submission to the beast. Get out, he says, you believers. You've only got a little bit of time. And look at the urgency, by the way. Look at the urgency with which Jesus speaks of it. Verse 17, let him which is on the housetop not come down to take anything out of his house. Neither let him which is in the field turn back to take his clothes. And woe unto them that are with child and to them that give suck in those days. But pray ye that your flight be not in the winter, neither on the Sabbath day, for then there shall be great tribulation. And this refers to the last half of the tribulation. There shall be great tribulation such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time, no, nor ever shall be. And these believers who hear the word will obey the word of God and they will start walking instantly into the wilderness. By the way, do we know where they're going to go? Yes, we do. And we know in some detail exactly where they're going to go. Let me just draw a quick map of Israel up on the board for you. Right? There's a map of Israel. It took me years to learn how to draw maps like this. We have the River Jordan coming down like that. I'm going to put Jerusalem there. Right? Jerusalem at that point. We know where they're going to go. They are going to go eastwards. They are going to cross over the River Jordan and they're going to find a hiding place in the mount these are mountains. In the mountains on the east side of Jordan. And the name in the Bible given to these is in the north Ammon, in the middle Moab, and in the south Edom. They are going to find a place there and in those mountains these Jewish believers are going to be safe and sound and protected by God. These Jewish believers who hear the word of God and put it into action, they are going to find safety for three and a half years in a place prepared by God on the east side of Jordan. How do we know? Well, we have a passage which deals with the battle plan in the land of Israel. It's a passage I'll be dealing with in a few studies time. Let me just give you one preview, one verse, okay? Turn to Daniel 11. Daniel chapter 11 and verse 41. The he here again refers to Antichrist and here he is, he's coming to quell the rebellion of the Jews. And look what it says. He, verse 41 of Daniel 11, shall enter also into the glorious land, the land of Israel, and the many, cut out the word countries if you've got it in the AV because the word countries is in italics and certainly isn't in the Hebrew, and the many shall be overthrown. That's a reference to the Jewish nation. But these shall escape out of his hand, even Edom and Moab and the chief of the children of Ammon. And no matter how much he spreads through the land, he's not going to be able to conquer these areas. Why? Because God has prepared a place for the woman to hide. And there it is. And this woman of uh, Revelation 12 verse 6 is a reference to these people that Jesus referred to in, in Matthew 24 fleeing into the wilderness. And there they'll be looked after. Incidentally, some American Christians have already put stocks of food, Bibles, the lot there bless their hearts hallelujah well well it does say it does say in revelation 12 and they shall feed them so it could be that they are doing absolutely right or perhaps that's a reference to cherith and the ravens we just don't know you know the ravens feeding them we just don't know but perhaps they prefer american corned beef or whatever <laughs> better but they're going to be totally protected all right but this now leaves us with a problem and it's the problem that I want to deal with to complete the Bible study for tonight. We have a major problem here because after three and a half years when Antichrist's uh, armies come and invade the land of Palestine, all the believers leave the land of Palestine and leave Jerusalem and they all flee into the hills where they're safe. The problem is this, that God always has a witness always has a witness everywhere in the world and in every generation. 
Now the question is, with all the believers taken out of the land of Palestine, who is going to witness for Jesus in the last three and a half years of the tribulation? This is a major problem. Do you know that God always has to have a witness? Must always have people available for anyone who turns to him positively. Anywhere in the world today, let me tell you this, no matter whether you're living in Bantustan or whether in Afghanistan, right, whether in Wapping or whether in Peking, any person that there is on the face of this earth, whether they be a Hottentot or an Eskimo, if they want to learn about Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ will lead them into just the right situation and to just the right person to hear the gospel. Oh yes, miraculously he will do it, definitely. By the way, the principle for us is, if you really are positive to God, you'll get the information that you need. How did I come into all of these things in the Bible? You know, I'll tell you, I was so desperate to know about these things that it wasn't long before God led me to just the right people, just the right books, the odd pamphlets. Amazing. And soon it all came together. God always responds to positive volition. He always does. Yeah. The question is, what about those people in the land of Palestine who are going to be positive to God? Who is going to feed them? Well, it is a major problem. Before Abraham... The family and the tribe always had believers in it to preach the gospel. When Abraham came along, there was always one nation on the face of the earth, the Jewish nation, to give out the gospel to the other nations who wanted to hear. When the Jews then rejected Jesus as their, as their Messiah, God raised up the church, miraculously. Do you know the events on the day of Pentecost occurred in the way that they did because God had to have a witness with the Jews cut off, you know? Yeah, always has to have a witness. Oh, let me give you a little example of that comes to mind most beautifully. Do you remember the period of time between the death and resurrection of Jesus and the day of Pentecost? Do you remember those 50 days between the resurrection of Jesus and Pentecost? Do you remember that the disciples, who should have been the witnesses, were sort of out of order? Yeah? They were too afraid, they stayed in the upper room. The question we could, could have asked in those days is, who were the witnesses in those 50 days? There had to be witnesses. Who were they? The answer is found in the most mysterious and wonderful passage, which I didn't mean to turn to tonight, but I certainly will, in Matthew chapter 27. Right? In Matthew 27, I find the verse when I get there, I hope, yes, here we are. Verse 51, look what God did to provide a witness. And this shows us the principle. Verse 50 onwards. Jesus, when he had cried again with a loud voice, yielded up the ghost. This is on the cross. And behold, the veil of the temple was rent in twain from top to the bottom, and the earth did quake, and the rocks rent. And the graves were opened. And many bodies of the saints which slept arose and came out of the graves after his resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared unto many. And this is a staggering thing because as soon as Jesus had been resurrected with the disciples not witnessing, God says, well, I'll tell you who we'll use. We'll use some of those people who've just died, some of those believers, you know? And there'd been people like Uncle Ebenezer who'd been a wonderful believer. No one had ever listened to him. All of a sudden, he finds temporarily he's returned to life. And he goes along and says, hello, hello, Martha. And of course, Martha absolutely feels like dropping dead. You know, I'm not referring to the biblical Martha, of course. And what, what happens? He preaches the gospel to her. And these people were walking all around the city of Jerusalem preaching the gospel, preaching the gospel, preaching the gospel as witnesses to Jesus Christ. God has to have a witness. All right, who's it going to be then? Who are the witnesses that God will raise up in this land for the last three and a half years? The answer is found in an equally mysterious passage, Revelation chapter 11. Another of those infill passages. Revelation chapter 11, where we see God's two witnesses. And here they are, raised up because the believers have left the land and because God must have witnesses. Especially in this part of history, where evangelism is important, absolutely vital. The time is so short. There must be witnesses. 
And in verse 1 of chapter 11, this is what we read. John certainly went through a huge experience during the, this time. There was given unto me a reed like unto a rod, and the angel stood saying, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and them that worship therein. This reed or rod is a surveyor's rod. And in the Old Testament, whenever God wanted to check how the people were getting on spiritually, this is the picture he used. You see? We see this in Zechariah 2, we see it in Ezekiel 40. He always goes and says, measure the temple and the people. See how, they're, you know, how they stand these days. And he's going to check his own property. That's basically what it is, you know? To see their spiritual condition. And in verse 2 he's told, but the court, which is outside the temple, don't bother to measure that. Measure it not, for it is given unto the Gentiles, and the holy city shall they tread underfoot forty and two months. What's this forty and two? Why, it's three and a half years. Who are the Gentiles referred to here? It's the armies of the Antichrist. In other words, he says, there's going to be armies marching up and down the land of Palestine and in Jerusalem for three and a half years. Don't bother to measure that. I know how they stand. You see, that's really what he's saying. And then it goes on. Verse 2, 3, sorry, verse 3, And I will give power unto my two witnesses. In other words, God is going to raise up two witnesses who will witness for three and a half years in conditions that no one else can take. And this is how it's going to be done. I will give power unto my two witnesses. They shall prophesy a thousand, two hundred, and threescore days clothed in sackcloth. What's that? Three and a half years or 42 months? Exactly the same period of time. Do you see how crucial this period of time is? It locates everything for us. And they will prophesy for all the period of time that the believers are out in the mountains. That's it. Verse 4, These are the two olive trees and the two candlesticks standing before the God of the earth. Now exactly the same picture language as that is used in Zechariah 4 talking about the leaders of the Jews. Uh, at the restoration, Zerubbabel and Joshua. A candlestick is a witness. These are my two witnesses, and the olive trees, of course, provided the olive oil, which actually caused the candlestick to burn, you know, the oil lamp to burn. And so what is he saying? Well, he's saying what Zechariah 4 says. It's not by might, it's not by power, it's by my spirit, saith the Lord. These two witnesses are going to be under my control and empowered by me. And verse 5 tells of the special protection they have, and are they going to need it? And if any man will hurt them, fire proceedeth out of their mouth and devoureth their enemies. And if any man will hurt them, he must in this manner be killed. And you might say, oh, that's incredible. Can't believe that. Oh, can't you? Then you haven't been reading your Old Testament. Because, in two, you read it afterwards, in 2 Kings chapter 1, we have exactly this occurring. Do you remember Elijah there? King Ahaziah sent to, uh, to Elijah and uh, he sent a group of 50 men to him. And they said, you come with me, you're being arrested. And Elijah said, oh yes. And he said, to prove I'm a man of God, there's gonna fire's going to come out of heaven and it's going to devour you. And fire came out of heaven and it devoured them. And then the king sent another 50 and exactly the same thing happened. It's all happened before in the Old Testament. And that's the system. It means that by the command of their mouth, fire will come and protect them. And they'll see a troop of, of uh, people coming towards them to, uh, to arrest them, and they'll say, Oh, God, get them. <laughs> and that'll be it. And fire will fall from heaven, they'll be devoured. And believe you me, it's not long before people learn to leave them well alone. <laughs> like the third group of 50, right, who didn't go. And that's what that means, you see. Who are these two witnesses? Verse 6 tells us. These have power to shut the heaven that it rain not in the days of their prophecy. Well, who's that? Well, there's one man in the Old Testament who uh, did exactly that. He said, let it not rain, and it did not rain. This is the man, Elijah. And the remarkable thing about Elijah is he didn't die. He was taken up into heaven do you remember? In a whirlwind, you see, on the chariot. Up he went. He didn't die. Why? Well, he's coming down again. And Malachi actually prophesied, didn't he? He said, before 
the Messiah comes suddenly into his temple, Elijah is going to precede him. And here he is. He's coming. But he's not going to be alone. Another man's going to rise as well. Look at the description of the second one. They have power over waters to turn them to blood and to smite the earth with all plagues as often as they will. Well, who's the man who did that? Moses did that. Now, you'll immediately say, ah, but Moses died. That's true. He did. No one knew where he was buried, though. You see, absolutely no, no one. And in the book of Jude, chapter 9, we read of a dispute which occurred between the archangel Michael and Satan, and it says in Jude 9, concerning the body of Moses. You see? Why? Because God said, oh, Michael, I want the body of Moses. I have need of it. You see? And Satan said, you can't have that. And Michael said, oh, yes, I'm going to have that. Why did God want Moses' body? I'll tell you why. He was going to send him back. And halfway through the tribulation, these two witnesses arise and they are completely protected from all who will come against them. And I'll tell you this, they will lead thousands to the Lord in the land of Palestine. Thousands who are not going to be protected in the hills, but thousands who are going to suffer tremendous tribulation and persecution um, in the land. Let's just see what happens. And when they shall have finished their testimony, that's at the end of three and a half years, the beast that ascendeth out of the bottomless pit, that shows us his satanic uh, power, shall make war against them, shall overcome them and kill them. And their dead bodies shall lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. And here is Jerusalem, of course, where Jesus was crucified. And notice it says, spiritually called Sodom and Egypt. At the end of three and a half years, these two witnesses die. And do you know what happens then? Let me just complete the story. You can read it for yourself in the next few verses. For three and a half days, the beast will not allow them to be buried. And it says that all the nations of the world look upon their bodies. How's it going to happen? Television is going to do it. And there will be television there, and everyone will rejoice. At last, the beast's dreadful enemies are thrown down. Oh, you know, and everyone's going to rejoice like mad. And at the end of three and a half days, God is going to raise them up. And they will be taken up into heaven. Let's just read it in verse 12. And they heard a great voice from heaven, saying unto them, Come up hither. And they ascended up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies beheld them. And at the same hour, look what happens, was there a great earthquake, and the tenth part of Jerusalem fell, and in the earthquake were slain of men seven thousand, and the remnant were affrighted and gave glory to the God of heaven. Amazing. At the very end of the tribulation, as these two witnesses are raised to life, and taken up into the heavenlies, an earthquake hits, a tenth of the city falls, 7,000 are killed, and thousands turn to the Lord. Amazing, amazing job. This is part of the witness of the Jews that they'll be in the land. Next time, I'll be dealing with evangelism in the tribulation. God bless you all. Amen. <laughs>